0: Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's good to have you with me. Today, I have the pleasure to share with you a really energetic and enjoyable conversation I had with Anne-Marie Shoup. Anne-Marie Shoup is a longtime AP reader. She is also a professor of political science at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, We talk about her path to her professorship, and in much more detail, we talk about her favorite class, Comparative Government. Now, the Comparative Government class that she teaches is not too dissimilar to the AP Comparative Government and Politics course that I teach insofar as Dr. Shoup chooses six countries, five of which are among the AP six. So we talk about what that class looks and feels like. We talk about the readings that she chooses to assign to her students and why she chooses to assign those readings in particular. We also talk about how she assesses her students with a little bit of a focus on this case study presentation assignment that she has her students do somehow in 15 minutes. It's a really interesting idea and a great challenge for students. You know, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and she concludes by sharing a little bit of advice to high school teachers and high school students about how to approach comparative government and politics courses. It was a total pleasure to speak with Anne-Marie. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you do, I would like to remind you, of course, that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you find this podcast edifying, if you get something out of it, if you would consider yourself a regular listener or in any way a beneficiary of the Kogo Pod, please head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Pod. The link to that is in the show notes. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash Pod. You can choose how, if at all, you want to contribute. And I'd like to take a hot moment here just to give a shout out to a comp- Comparative government and politics teacher this kind soul donated to the kogo pod under the name hardy hardy th so hardy th whoever you are wherever you are out there in the ether thanks for your contribution it really means a lot to me your contribution helps to keep this thing going Now I might add here that this conversation is part of a small series I'm doing of conversations with comparative government and politics teachers at the university level. Most of them are people who are also AP readers, people who I've met in Salt Lake City at the annual reading. So while they are in fact in the employ of a university and they do all of the work associated with that, they're also keenly aware of the AP Comparative Government Politics course. They read high school student writing at least for a week, a year. They interface with high school comparative government and politics teachers. So they know the score is what I'm saying. And Dr. Anne-Marie Shoup definitely knows the score. Total pleasure to speak with her, to learn from her. You're going to enjoy this one. So please join me in conversation with Dr. Shoup. Dr. Anne-Marie Shoup, welcome to The Kogo Pod. Very grateful to have you. And since I'm a bit of a sucker for origin stories, I hope we might begin with you sharing the origin story of how and when you became a political animal.
1: (laughs) Political animal. This This is a very fun question. And thank you for inviting me to this podcast, Daniel. This is super exciting. I come from probably a family of political animals, um, and it was always kind of in the background. I am an army brat. We lived in a couple of different places as I was growing up. And my first awareness of politics was actually in probably 1978, 1979, when I was little, little. And on the news, um, there was just a ton of stuff going on in Iran. So my first political, explicitly political memories um, was people being angry with the Shah of Iran for some reason that I could not understand, but that is now incredibly clear to me. Um, There were a whole bunch of reasons to be angry (sighs) with the Shah and just kind of being aware that, wow, this really big thing is happening. It's far away from me and um, I'm curious. So I think that's really what, what started me kind of thinking about what is happening in places where I don't live that is really very important and will probably eventually affect the places that I
0: do live. Now, do you think that your having grown up, having lived in various countries, helped you to think comparatively?
1: I think definitely that, having lived in different places. The places that I lived were all relatively similar in the grand scheme of things. We lived in Europe, I lived in Rome, Italy, I lived in Belgium, my mother is French and she has relatives in different parts of France, and then I lived in different parts of the United States, so it was all very Western, industrialized, democratic.
0: Right.
1: I think what makes me more open to different ideas is actually speaking different languages. So I grew up bilingual. I've always spoken French. French was actually my first language. I'm more comfortable in English now. And there's something about, as you know, speaking different languages that really opens you up to thinking about concepts differently. Right. Realizing that there are words that don't fully translate into words in a separate language.
0: Yeah, I totally feel you there. And so if that's where it all began, you having seen, you know, a substantial part of at least the Western industrialized world, maybe I could beg you to kind of quick walk me along your path to your professorship. Like, where did you study? What was your dissertation topic? Like, how did you choose that? And then maybe a little bit about what you're doing now,
1: Sure, that was, it's been a really fun journey all along, I must say. So, knowing that I was interested in different countries, understanding what was happening in different countries and in different languages, I went to Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. So, my bachelor's is actually a bachelor's of science in foreign service, and that's essentially kind of a history government degree. They really, really encouraged us to study abroad. And I went to Buenos Aires in Argentina for my junior year, which was just a phenomenal experience because I had traveled before. Um, It had always been as a family member, someone else making decisions. And all I had to do was kind of keep track of my, my own personal items and everything else was taken care of for me. This was my first time traveling alone. And it was my first time traveling outside of kind of the European industrialized democracy, U.S., places that were more familiar. And uh, that was a great experience. That was one of the best decisions probably I I ever made in terms of formative decisions. I became fascinated, even more fascinated with Latin America. Um, I had picked Argentina, actually, because I really liked Broadway musicals. And when Evita (laughs) came out, I paid attention to the lyrics. And there were so many different parts in the... Actual, you know, musical opera that I'm thinking: What do these lyrics mean? Do these lyrics reference something that really happened? Is it all fiction? How much is it dramatized for the sake of the the musical plot? So I really wanted to more fully understand that um, and go to Argentina and go to Eva Perón's grave. And I had, you know, this whole list of things that I was actually um, thrilled to be able to to see and to experience. Um, so I became really interested in Latin America as a comparativist at that point. I went on to do a master's in international affairs at the George Washington University. Okay. And then I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go from there. For a while, while I was an undergraduate, I thought I would want to join the Foreign Service with the ultimate goal of becoming an ambassador somewhere. Then I changed my mind. Uh (laughs) And I was more interested in just kind of analyzing and picking apart and understanding things. Then I became really interested in development work. Because again, growing up, I only lived in industrialized countries. um, And then I had the experience of living in the Southern Cone, um, where this was at the late 80s, early 90s. Um, So there was an awful lot of industrialization. There's a lot of development, which of course took place differently in the southern cone of Latin America than it did in Western Europe and the United States that I was more familiar with. Um, But in any event, I was more interested in kind of development issues. So I joined the Peace Corps and they sent me to Cameroon, which was a totally different part of the world for me. I had never studied in depth anything about politics of sub-Saharan Africa Um, but I lived there for two years. I was assigned to a high school where I taught English, and that was another just phenomenal experience. I love to get on the the Peace Corps Soapbox and encourage people to check that out as an option. Uh, But anyway, after coming back from that experience, I was more interested in development issues. And um, I was also extremely interested in teaching because I loved being in the classroom and working with young adults and just the energy of young adults as kind of uh, a global thing, right? Whoever you are in the world, young adults are always super interesting. So I was interested in teaching and I was still interested in comparative politics. So I went for PhD studies in political science. So I went to the University of North Carolina to study political science and um, specifically comparative politics and Latin American politics um, at Chapel Hill. And that was a great choice of a school. I felt very supported in all of my work, very encouraged in all of my work. And um, yeah, you know, the PhD years are really, really hard, but just so much fun because you're just focused on learning the whole time. And you're there with experts that have you know, dedicated their professional lives to learning and understanding things. So um, yeah.
0: So you spent most of the 90s doing your PhD work at UNC Chapel Hill, yeah?
1: The second half, yes. I was a Peace Corps volunteer from 1994 to 96, and then I jumped right into the PhD work. Okay,
0: and how long did that take you?
1: It took me five years, which is a little bit less than average. I had some credit coming in because I had done a master's degree and I was, I was pretty focused. I was really interested in development issues. I was really interested in the work of grassroots organizations because of the work that I did as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I kind of applied the, the dynamics that I had observed with grassroots organizations in Cameroon, in the town where I was posted. And I kind of looked at how that worked In a Latin American context yeah so there's there's a little story that goes with that if you want to hear the little story
0: I love little stories big stories I'll take any story you'll give me
1: okay so here's the little story so I am the idealistic Peace Corps volunteer I'm very excited to be there um every day in Peace Corps was an amazing day. I mean, even the bad days, you you learn things, and it's an, an interesting experience. The very very bad days, then you know, where you're sick and miserable, and you know, question all of your life choices. We have those.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: we have those in life, right? And then having them in Peace Corps is no different. Um, but there was one day where I was invited to join this group of women that had started this organization. And I didn't know too much about it, but it was like this mutual aid organization and it was the spouse of one of my coworkers that had invited me. So it was this new friend. I was just super excited about it. And what I learned later learned that this organization has a name, it's a rotating lump fund association. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. But the idea is in a place where formal banking is either inaccessible or not reliable, people form their own version of banks where all of these women would get together and once a month, once a week, whatever the rules are, they put in you know $1, some small amount in the fund. And one person in the group takes the entire fund with her and does something with it. And it rotates. Everyone gets a turn getting this big lump amount at the meeting. And they can invest it. They can start a business with it. They can do a home improvement with it. Um, something that is going to bring them dividends in some material way so that they can continue to contribute the small amount at future meetings. So I thought this was super exciting. This is, you know, women, this is self empowerment. Um, And then I realized after a few of these meetings that they weren't being very equitable about who gets to take the money home and that I was participating by donating money and that essentially I would never get a turn. Like I was not going to be scheduled anytime soon. And that this had happened to a couple of other people. And I thought, wow, I thought this was a really exciting empowering thing and actually it can be very deceiving yeah but possibly it could have been a very empowering and wonderful thing, right? And I later learned, you know, looking this up as a, as a political scientist, that this is a great way for women to empower themselves. You just have to use that institution properly, right? Right, And there are all sorts of ways that you can use it improperly, which of course is, is a theme in politics more generally. So that's one of the, you know, and, and there are just so many different places where I would go to meetings expecting, oh, this is fantastic. Everything's going to be beautiful. This is, you know, people becoming empowered. And sometimes it was that, and sometimes it was not. Um, you know, so it got me thinking about, you know, institutions and rules and how they can be used properly, how they can be used improperly to benefit just a few people.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's what I was interested in. So for my dissertation, I looked at grassroots organizations in the Dominican Republic and how they worked together in networks of grassroots organizations to make demands on government. And then analyzing what made them successful in making demands, um, what led to failures, and how people used those organizations.
0: Oh, that is a fantastic story. It's completely fascinating. and. I kind of want to read your dissertation. Um, But that was some 20 years ago. Maybe let's fast forward a little bit. Where are you currently employed? What classes do you teach there?
1: So I teach at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Mm -hmm. It is a medium-sized regional university, public university, I teach comparative politics every single semester. That is, it's really my my favorite. <laughs> I love getting to teach it every semester. It is a class that fulfills general education requirements. So I get to have students from just all over the campus. We are a very STEM heavy university. So I get to see all the engineering students that are taking their social science requirements and they just bring a wonderful variety of perspectives yeah. to the classroom. I really love teaching classes to political science students, right? Majors, and we all can kind of geek out and have fun with political science in that sense. But doing the introductory class is just so much fun because people often don't exactly know what they're signing up for. Yeah, yeah. And it's fun to just introduce people to you know, just the topic. And here's a whole entire discipline or a subfield of political science where we are looking to figure out how politics happen in other countries and what similarities there are between these different countries and what kind of lessons we can learn for how we want to behave in our own political settings. And um, it's great stuff. I also, on a rotating basis, will teach Latin American politics and African politics. I often get to teach the senior seminar class, which is a capstone experience for our majors. That's a lot of fun as well. Yeah.
0: Well, since the comparative government class is naturally your favorite among them, Let's perhaps take a deep dive into that. And again, not being entirely sure where to begin, perhaps we could just begin at the beginning. Like, aside from the nuts and bolts of, you know, welcoming students and having introductions and, you know, kind of walking them through the rules of the road, as it were, how does your comparative government course begin?
1: So, I like to start with a few key concepts. I use the case study approach where we look at countries and explore common themes within the countries as opposed to a thematic approach where you, you know, where you do the reverse. look at a theme and then look at case study examples Uh, because I think case studies are just fascinating. I love to hear the story of a country or the story of a leader. Um, So I really like to focus on those stories. So the first thing that we'll do in the the first few classes is think about what a country is. Um, Define state, define nation, define nation state. Think about the differences between those concepts and what it means. Because once you get nation and state straight and think about how they ideally go together in a country, it helps to explain so much of what can go wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the first case study we do is the United Kingdom, and I like to spend some time looking at Northern Ireland because there is so much that can be applied around the world by understanding the case of Northern Ireland.
0: Absolutely. And I might share with our listeners here that in advance of our conversation, you were kind enough to share with me your syllabus and I perused it. And I was so, so thrilled to find that the book that you choose to have your students read for the United Kingdom is the Patrick Radden Keefe book. Say nothing. Uh, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland. I read it. I love it. I should say, fun fact: in today's New Yorker, I guess it came out on it came out yesterday, the day before, it came out Sunday. Uh, Patrick Redden Keith has a, a new contribution, which focuses on Larry Gagosian. I don't know this the art dealer guy. Oh, yeah, he's you know he he's a he's an investigative journalist, and and of course, as you well know, like the tone of the book is really investigative in nature. I have to ask you, incidentally, I don't know if this is worth keeping on the podcast, but since I'm such a podcast junkie, do you know about his Wind of Change podcast? I do not. Oh my God. Okay, I'm always loathe to say, you really have to read this, or you really have to listen to this, (laughs) but it's Patrick Radden Keefe and all of his brilliance. He's the smartest guy in every room. And he does a podcast where he asks the question... This is an eight-part podcast. Uh, he asks the question, did the CIA write the Scorpion song, Wind of Change? Oh. You know the song, right? Scorpion's the, the German band? Uh-huh. Take me to the magic of the moment on a glory night. That song that like embodied the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was the song about freedom in Eastern Europe following the fall of the wall.
1: That's fascinating. I actually don't now have still loving you in my head now, probably for the rest (laughs) of the day, but I can't think of
0: wind of change. Well, listening to me sing it is not going to help you um, in (laughs) any way, shape, or form. I will
1: go down and I will look at my records after this conversation.
0: You've um, definitely heard the song. Like it's it's in you somewhere. mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure of that. And so the (laughs) CIA may or may not have written that song. The Wind of Change podcast. Sorry, I digressed. It's totally my fault. You're focused. I'm scattered in my thinking. (laughs) But yes, the Northern Ireland book. Yes. Can you do me a favor? Do our listeners a favor and tell them why you choose to have your students read this book and why every listener to this podcast should at least carefully consider reading it.
1: So we read the Say Nothing book for a number of reasons. I like to really look very closely at the case of Northern Ireland because I find that so many of the concepts that we teach in comparative politics are relatively straightforward. And what trips students up the most is all of the misinformation or oversimplifications that they've been exposed to before ever setting foot in the comparative politics classroom and one of the oversimplifications that is just so not helpful is that northern ireland is a religious conflict right it's catholics against protestants right so i like to take apart this this thing and talk about you know social cleavages and identity and emphasize that you know no one's arguing about you know which version of the bible or how to worship this is really not at its heart, a religious conflict. So anything that helps to kind of take apart and further explain what has happened in Northern Ireland and what continues to happen in Northern Ireland um, is, is going to be helpful kind of for my purposes. And again, this has very broad comparative application because there are oversimplifications of pretty much every conflict around the world that we are exposed to that we really have to push against to to understand more deeply. Right. And kind of the the general oversimplification is always going to be something along the lines of, oh, these people have always hated each other. These people have always fought against each other. And that just that gets us nowhere. That right. <laughs> it's it's inaccurate and it doesn't have any explanatory leverage at all. So the Say Nothing book has just a lot of detail in it. I was a little nervous about assigning it because it is so dense. There's so much information there. Yeah. But students tend to really enjoy it. Um, they want to find out what happens to the different characters. There are so many different interesting and fascinating life stories in there. And I find that they are not overwhelmed by the amount of information. Um, they really just want to get to the end and find out what happens with these different non-fictional characters, what happens to these people.
0: Right, because Patrick Raddenkief is so gifted at weaving a narrative that you really do develop a relationship with these characters along the way, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And and they're very complicated. There are no you know easy good guys or bad guys. It's people put in these really difficult situations and making the best decisions that they can based on what
0: they know. Right on. Well, I will, dear listeners, uh, link to Patrick Redden book in the show notes of this podcast. But I have to say, Anne-Marie, I kind of uh, apologetically um, maybe cut you off. We were just talking about how the course started. You said that you start with the UK in part because it helps us to get some terms straight. Where does your course go from there?
1: So I like to choose my cases in categories. So I like to start with industrialized democracies because for better or worse, those are kind of the templates. Once you understand the different choices and kind of institutional structures that exist in the industrialized democracies in Europe, you can understand the variations that exist from there. So the cases that I've chosen change over time. Um, right now, I'm doing six. I do industrialized democracies of the u k. and France. Uh-huh. And then I do communist post-communist countries with Russia and China. Uh-huh. And then I do developing countries with Mexico and Nigeria,
0: ok. I have to ask. So you, do five of the AP six, Yes. you swap out Iran for France. You swap out the one country that is in some way responsible for turning you into a political animal. Do I got that right?
1: Yes. (laughs) And whenever I change the country selections, it's, it's so hard. I remember in graduate school, a student who was dissertating who was a, a year or two ahead of me talking about the chapters in his dissertation as if they were his children, yeah. and he can't say that he has any single favorite, but, you know, this particular one is difficult in this way, and this is my easygoing chapter slash child and I feel that way with my kind of academic connection to these country cases. Yeah. So there are a number of cases that I have taught in the past that I have dropped for reasons of efficiency. Like how applicable are the lessons from this case study to most other countries in this world? And Iran is so unique yeah. that it is absolutely worth understanding In its own right, if you live in the United States or if you've been raised in the United States, you've gotten messages about Iran, and they are going to be almost certainly very incomplete at best. Iran as a case study is absolutely fascinating, but I would want to spend so much more time than I'm able to if I'm already looking at four or five other countries. I would love to spend at least half a semester on Iran in order to really get into it. When I was doing my master's work, as an aside, you had to pick three different areas, right? So there's kind of one general sub-discipline and then two different regional areas. And I did comparative politics, um, and I did Latin American history, And Middle Eastern politics.
0: Oh, okay. I've
1: always been super interested in Middle Eastern politics. Um, I even studied Arabic for a short while. Um, The Saudi Arabian embassy in Washington, D.C. I don't know if they still do this, but they used to give free Arabic lessons. When I lived in D.C., I I started learning Arabic, which is, again, understanding different languages, even just a little bit, is so helpful in just understanding in a global sense. So I... I know a lot about the historic context of Iran, and I don't fully have the skill set to be able to condense all of that in a way that I find satisfying to convey to
0: students. Right. I mean, sometimes the more one knows, the harder it is for them to teach. And that's particularly true in the context of your class. Now, I ran the numbers having looked at your syllabus, and it sounds like this. You have 14 weeks of class. About three and a half months. You do six cases. Now, that means that you see your students substantially less than most high school teachers. Now, I have 36 weeks to teach this class, I see my students most days, but 80% of the high school AP comparative government and politics teachers uh, teach this course in one semester. But still, they have something more like 18 weeks. They see their students probably five days a week. You have this really condensed time frame. And it it dawns on me that, first of all, that's got to be terribly difficult. And so I totally understand why bringing you know, eternally complicated Iran into the mix could easily muddy waters. But let me ask you this. Why do you choose six cases? Because, and again, this is coming from a fool, and I am but a fool. (laughs) If I were you, I would maybe, because I would have the freedom as an instructor to do so, choose depth over breadth and maybe go to four. Walk me through your decision process of sticking with six cases. And are you ever tempted to cut it down?
1: I I don't think I can remove any more of these cases. I love all of them so much. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I really, I enjoy teaching them so much. And I think the six cases that I have right now really capture a lot of what can be applied globally. Uh, Because really that's one of my key goals in this class is for students Well, one goal is for students to understand these six cases really well, but mostly to understand these cases really well so that if they're given any single piece of information about any country in the world, they can think, oh, this might be similar to France, and this is how I can understand this other country that I've just now heard existed, right? So the generalizability is really important to me, Um, and for that reason, I will probably always stick with six. When I was an undergraduate there was a comparative governments class they were split in two so um it was modern foreign governments which we affectionately nicknamed mofogo <laughs> I don't know if you want that in the in the podcast or not I do <laughs> but, so there was mofogo 1 and mofogo 2 and you would choose from, it was a kind of two columns of different courses situation, and they would be different regions. So for the first semester, I did Europe, and it was France, the UK, and Germany, specifically West Germany, because this was the 80s. Right. And for the second section, I did communist, post-communist countries. And that got super confusing um, because this was the late 80s. So kind of the Soviet Union, but it looked like maybe that was falling apart. Um, and then I think we wound up just looking at that because it was, in fact, falling apart. Um, but I think in in past, it earlier in the 80s, it would be like the Soviet Union um, Poland, and I can't remember what the third country would be. So in as an undergraduate, I got to be exposed to three countries at a time, but it was also understood to be a year-long process of looking at these modern foreign governments. So given that I'm trying to do this all in one semester, and I don't want it to be only Europe or only post-communist countries or only industrialized or industrializing countries i need to pull from those three categories to give kind of the broadest overview i love it and my hope is ultimately that students will find one particular category really interesting and you know maybe you know they will pay more attention to that category of country and those kind of current events in their lives right or maybe academically they'll become more interested and want to take more classes um, but I, I, I do want to make sure that I have one from each, but then more than one, right? Because the alternative then would be to have one industrialized democracy, one post-communist country, and one developing country. And I just, I cannot bring myself to just pick one from each category. So that is the long answer to the question of, of why <laughs> these six countries and why not Iran. Um, I also cut with... Great sadness. I cut Iran, which I've done in the past. I cut Germany, which, as you know, is a fascinating case. Uh Um, And I cut India. So Uh, yeah, those were hard decisions.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet.
1: Um, And they'll probably come back at some point, depending on what's going on in the world and what is most important, in my view, um, for people to know.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for walking me through your decision-making process there. It makes perfect sense. I'm with you. You teach these six countries. You don't assign a book for each. We already talked about the book that you assign your students for the UK. You do assign two other books. And I'm actually kind of excited to hear you talk uh, about both. What's the book you assign for China? What's the book you assign for Nigeria? And why do you choose those books?
1: So for China, we read Indelible City by Louisa Lim. It's about Hong Kong. And I wanted a book about Hong Kong because when I was an undergraduate, I had the hardest time remembering the differences between mainland China, the Republic of China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And, you know, what are the differences and how are they related to each other? And it just seemed so complicated to me. And, of course, now I've been thinking about these these entities for decades, so now it's very clear. But I think it's it's pretty confusing, right? So it's it's confusing until you get to know at least one of the regions really well. And I think that um, the author, Louisa Lim, just does an amazing job Looking at Hong Kong, um, having lived there and having both an insider and outsider perspective, because she is not of um, she's not of local ancestry, she's of, of mixed ancestry. But she talks about the history of Hong Kong. She talks about how much history has been erased, or how there's there's been an attempt to erase Hong Kong history, but it cannot be erased. Therefore, the title, Indelible City. And she sees Hong Kong through all these changes, the recent changes, the handover back to China, in a way that I just I find very not relatable, um, but right. accessible. Yeah, very accessible and just really interesting. That I mean, her own life experiences interwoven with the larger political narrative, um, and I think it's there's universal appeal to this concept of someone, some greater authority or some strong power trying to erase something that is important to you, right? It's the the yeah. underdog story that yes. has that global appeal. And she tells that story really, really well. And it's a story that doesn't really end because we don't know what's next.
0: Right, right. Um, I haven't read it, I have to confess. I have read the People's Republic of Amnesia, uh, which came out, a f- I, I imagine, just a few years before this. It's a, it's a rather recent book. There's a number of teachers on the Comparative Government and Politics like Facebook page that have read The People's Republic of Amnesia. That's where I had learned about it. And like Patrick Raddenkief, she definitely is an expert at weaving a narrative. Um, she's also a podcaster, incidentally, mm. The Little Red Podcast. She does it with another Australian Person. I've only heard a couple of episodes, but I like her. I like her.
1: Interesting. Well, you know, there's a book that I used to assign for China. I used to assign the Wild Swans yes. book. Yes.
0: Uh, Ch- uh, June Chang. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I didn't want to get um, her name wrong. That book's great. The three generations of uh, Chinese women and their their relationship and their aspiration and the dialogue between them. Yeah, Wild Swans is great.
1: It is. It's a, it's a great book. And again, just that historic context with so many, you know, literally foreign examples, people will look at kind of the status quo in a country from the US perspective and they'll wonder, you know, why do people put up with this? You know, why do people support this authoritarian government? And without understanding what came before, and without understanding that there's often a continuity of authoritarian governments, these things don't just kind of pop up in a vacuum, you really can't understand what's happening in any given country. And I think that Wild Wild Swans book is so good at explaining, you know, here's the grandmother who essentially grew up in this feudal context, and here's the mother who was a revolutionary, and there were all these really good reasons for her to be a revolutionary, you know, but then here's the daughter, the author, and here's how the revolution is turning out for her, and it's just, it's a great book.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, there's a third and final book that you assign, and I hadn't read it, nor had I even heard of it, But the author's last name is very much familiar. What's your book for Nigeria?
1: So it's Looking for Trans Wonderland, and it's written by Na Sarawiwa. And she is, in fact, Ken Sarawiwa's daughter. And she has a fascinating life story. So Ken Sarawiwa, of course, was assassinated by the Abacha regime in Nigeria in the 90s. She grew up mostly in the UK, and they would essentially summer in Nigeria. So now Sarah Wiwa's story is really interesting because she is Nigerian. She has a famous Nigerian last name, but she really is a foreigner to Nigeria. So in this book, she goes to Nigeria as an adult and... Is literally looking for an amusement park called Trans Wonderland, um, but she's really looking for the wonder in Nigeria in general, um, and looking to kind of reconnect with Nigeria um, in a way that is deeper than her short summer trips when she was a child. And I think a lot of students relate to that story of you know where they are now versus where they come from, where their parents come from, and it's just it's a neat personal story and it's a very interesting political story as well and it's a lot of different vignettes it's not one long story from beginning to end so very readable um very fun really um and fascinating political implications and discussions that come from that
0: yeah all right well i will link to looking for trans wonderland in the show notes of this podcast um great book selections really compelling like narrative driven The third one almost seems like a travelogue of sorts. Yes.
1: And she is a travel writer.
0: Okay. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. Um, So your students must be grateful for the thought you put into selecting books for them to read. There's another thing that it seems you do uh, in the class that I wanted to tee you up to talk about a little bit. In addition to the six countries that you choose for your students, you... Uh, let's say, invite <laughs> your students, you know, challenge them, force them perhaps, to choose a case study outside of the six that you select that they find to be particularly interested in. And they have to do a presentation. This seems like it's about 15% of their grade. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the country study presentations that your students do? do they select countries from across the globe? Are there certain countries that students seem year after year to be most interested in? And like, what do those presentations look like on a good day?
1: The presentations are phenomenal on a good day. And on a bad day, they're at the very least very interesting. Okay. (laughs) So I do this because sometimes people go into comparative politics, and they have a sense that we're looking at You know, countries, different countries, and they come in with a fascination or an interest in a specific country that I don't cover. So I wanted to make space for people to look at that country more academically, more analytically. How would you teach this country? How would you examine this country if it was one of our six countries? So they can pick almost any country. Um, I do need to approve it. Sometimes people will ask about a territory that's not really a country, and I, I've gotten some interesting ones over time that I will not approve, but for the most part, any country is good for our
0: purposes. Hold on. Real, real quick, I have to know, what are the top three most common countries that students select?
1: Oh my gosh. Italy,
0: uh-huh.
1: Australia. Oh. People always want to do Australia, and very often they want to do Canada. That one always surprises me.
0: Okay. True or false? Australia is actually governed by koala bears. Is that false? I'm not sure.
1: Uh, oh gosh, that's a complicated
0: question. Yeah. There's a children's book about this of sorts. It's, it's quite okay. I cut you off for <laughs> no like... particularly good reason. Just like a really cheap sophomoric joke. It's excellent. So Italy, Canada, Australia, carry on. Yes.
1: And New Zealand as well. There's, there's a fascination with Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, I'm, if that fascinates you, then awesome, let's do it. Let's have fun with comparative politics. So there's a basic a rubric that I provide them that I'm going to be looking for these elements and how well you present these elements to us. And that it's somewhat It's actually quite structured, which makes it easier, I think, for everyone to follow along and understand all of the other presentations. And I mean, that's kind of the whole point of comparative politics, right? These countries are all very dramatically different from each other sometimes. But once you look at certain commonalities or look for certain themes, it becomes easier to understand additional countries. So on a good day, um, students will have found one thing that really fascinates them about the country. And it really comes out, they get very enthusiastic when they talk about this one part. One of the things that I will score them on is at the end of the presentation, I want them to tell us what is the one thing we need to remember about this country if we forget everything else. And it's really fun to see what it is that they pick, you know, and sometimes it'll be something like, Australia has many koala bears and it is difficult to manage or, you know, I mean, it can be just any number of things. And it's so much fun to see what they come up with.
0: Little nuts and bolts question about the presentation. Can they work in teams or groups? And how long are these presentations or how long are they supposed to be?
1: The presentations are ideally 10 to 15 minutes, which is super hard when you oh get excited gosh. about a country case. Yes. Yes. Really hard. I will cut them off after 15 minutes.
0: Oh, you're brutal.
1: It is brutal. (laughs) Well, they practice. First I model it. So I'll do one of our country cases and I will do the run through in less than 15 minutes so they can see that it can be done. And typically there will be an in-class exercise where they do it as a group, right? Here's a country case that we just looked at. How would you run through institutions in two minutes? How would you run through a current event story in three minutes? So they have practiced doing that and they've seen it done before they actually have to do it for their country cases. And they do a great job.
0: That's awesome. Can I give you a hot tip from a total buffoon? Yes. I would be super interested to see a compilation of the most critically important lesson from each country that your students choose, like over the years, right? Just like a running tally of the most important thing we should know about that country. You could turn it into a blog. I think it would be super interesting to like hear the most critically important lesson that they extract from their country. Of course, I'm to be ignored. We both know this.
1: No, that is really interesting. That would be super fun. Just
0: fun. Just looking for fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. I... I literally feel a little stressed out just by hearing that people have to present a country in 15 minutes. I know that's not your effort. I'll bet these presentations are super energetic. I bet they're really interesting. I would love to just watch one one time. Really cool idea. I like it. So students are giving these presentations, that's 15% of their grade. They take three exams. The first one covers the industrialized democracies, the UK and France, like you said. The second one covers the uh, post-communist, communist communist states, Russia, China, and the third one, uh, developing countries, as we're calling them, Mexico and Nigeria. I'm kind of curious as to what the exams look like, but I'm also pretty committed to respecting your time so I'm going to ask you a more broad question. Um, and it might be a little bit on the nose, but I was reading through your syllabus and I was thinking I would really love to take this course. And you were saying that you love to teach it. What do you love about your comparative government course? Oh, wow. What do
1: I love about it? Part of it is the uncertainty that, you, you never quite know what's going to happen next in any given country. We, we don't know what's going to happen next in the country where we live, yeah, right? Yeah. There's, it's always changing. It's a challenge. I need to keep up with at least six different countries. I need to keep track of, okay, who's having elections? Who's in power right now? Um, the UK has made that really difficult in the last <laughs> few years, but I think we've got some stability there. And it's I love how it's always changing There's improvements, there's lessons to be learned. I love that there are lessons to be learned to apply in whatever country you wind up living in, right? We don't necessarily live in any of these six countries. Maybe we'll never set foot in any of these six countries, but we can take those lessons home and think about how we want to interact with the political system and what we want for the political system that governs us and that we can
0: participate in. Yeah. Right on. Right on, Anne-Marie Shoup. Now, we didn't mention that the only way I I know you, and and I don't know you as well as I'd like to, is through the AP Comparative Government and Politics reading in Salt Lake City. You and I have both been doing it for a while. You spend a, a week, a year with comparative government instructors, but also high school teachers. And we're reading comparative government and politics essays there in Salt Lake. And I I guess I'm curious, um, given the experiences you've had, reading high school essays and talking to high school teachers, what advice might you be so kind as to offer to fledgling comparativists and or their teachers?
1: Oh, wow. Advice. Advice in terms of um, how to learn, how to teach, how to take the test.
0: How about how to learn and how to teach? And we'll leave the test out of it.
1: Okay. So um, understand the context, right? Comparative politics is not a history class, But we always need to know the historic context, right? What we're looking at right now and the stories that we see in the news are just a snapshot, but understanding what brought us to that particular point, right? Get curious about the perspective of people who live there and who have lived there. Whenever possible, I bring in the voices of the people in the country that we study. So it's not just my voice or a textbook author's voice. right? Um, What have people experienced actually living there Um, so that we're trying to get more of an inside perspective and we're not kind of judging from the outside, which is what media accounts do, of course, because they're reporting from the outside. And the the biggest block to understanding comparative politics is the oversimplified, inaccurate reporting and concepts that have been put into our heads before we look at these country cases more carefully.
0: Yeah. You really have to unlearn quite a bit before you can learn the content of this course. And part of that has to do with like thoroughly and metacognitively grappling with dogma. Mm -hmm. And I think we can say to young people, you know, I'm about to do a Robin Williams impression, but it's not your fault. It's not (laughs) your fault,
1: right? (laughs) Absolutely.
0: You know, it's not their fault, but it is their problem. Like they have been, particularly if they are, you know, precocious, mm. worldly, young people who have a lot of content, they don't just by virtue of being young have a lot of context. And so in a way, the kids who come into a comparative government and politics class, whether it's in high school or in college, you know, most quote unquote prepared, they also face a, a, a burden that the other students don't, right? Because they have to unlearn that much more before they can open their hearts and their minds to these countries, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, someone will, you know, almost every semester, I think someone will say to me, oh, I'm excited that we're doing Northern Ireland, and we're paying so much attention to Northern Ireland, because I find religious conflict to be fascinating. You know, and that's, Okay. That's the message that we keep getting, but really it's not about religion. So yes, they do have to, no one comes into comparative politics with a a clean slate, right? So we need to look at those slates and and see what's on it and see what's useful and see what we want to change.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So at the most basic level, Anne-Marie, my effort in this podcast, is to do my little small part to to grow this course, which is kind of like code for to to foster comparative thinking, right? Like that's what I'm trying to do here, and I'm not trying to suggest you know that this you know humble little podcast is going to do that per se, but like that's what I'm trying to do. Like I said, my my small part because. I am such a beneficiary of having had the opportunity to teach this class. It has shaken my worldview, like fundamentally. You know, I moved to Barcelona in 2005. And I was, you know, like you were talking about, you know, picking up a new language and learning new customs and habits and manners and mores and folkways, and just beginning to think comparatively in my life and that's when i began teaching this course and i feel like i'm just kind of a better thinker i almost want to say a better person for having had the opportunity to to teach this course mm-hmm. and to to share that space with students in the process so i really for these reasons i'm trying to you know grow the course what do you wish more people knew about the discipline of comparative politics and why it's so important.
1: I wish more people knew that what happens in other countries ultimately affects us all. And that there are lessons to be learned that we could benefit from um, by understanding what is happening in other countries to other people. Uh, There are these universal kind of desires and needs that we all have as people. And seeing how people work out what they need within a particular country context or with a particular government just has so much applicability. There are just so many benefits from understanding politics in different countries. Even if you never traveled to those other countries, if you stay in one country your whole entire life, you really just benefit so much from understanding what's happening abroad. Right? And especially if you are based in the United States, we have people from all over the world that come into the United States. So really better understanding each other within a diverse country like the
0: United States, just so important. You preach, Dr. Shoup, you preach. <laughs> I'm right there with you. MoFoGo. Yes. Um, (laughs) So that would be a great place just to wrap. That was really nice to hear you say that. But I want to, before we wrap here, give you the opportunity to recommend to our audience, you know, an audience of mostly high school students and high school teachers, a, a resource that has helped to shape your thinking about comparative government and politics. It could be anything. If you want, I'll give you two and I'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Okay, oh, this is tough. So I am a big fan of The Economist as a news source. It is relatively expensive to get as a subscription, but you can get a free summary podcast of The Economist, just about four or five minutes, and it comes out I think three times a day, but you only really need to listen to one of them. Just get a summary of what's happening in the world. And Another source that I like to use is um, really any human rights organization. Um, I know that you have contacts with, with Human Rights Watch. Any summary of the human rights situation in a country that interests you is going to give you just so much more insight on how politics are working, um, because you want to understand how politics are working for everyone. right? So if someone is being left out, if someone is being targeted and repressed by a government, that's an important part of the story that doesn't often come out in the headlines. So um, we look at the Freedom House reports for all of our country cases. Um, and you know, there are other great places as well. Human Rights Watch will, will do a good job. Amnesty International does a great job. Um, but keeping the human rights issues in the picture is really important.
0: It might be the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. Anne-Marie Shoup, it has been a real pleasure to share this space with you to learn a bit about you to learn about your course this has been a really edifying experience for me and i'm sure it has been for our listeners as well thanks for being on the kogo pod
1: i really enjoyed it thank you so much daniel
0: all right there you have it my conversation with dr anne marie shoup what a wonderful conversationalist very insightful i enjoyed every second of it i hope you did too And of course, if you did, just a friendly reminder, that's buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. The link is in the show notes. I hope this podcast finds you healthy. I hope it finds you well. I hope it finds you deep in your studies. Please take care, and we'll catch you on the next episode.